I went online for my opening illustration uh, for the text this morning. I hope you appreciate the effort and the fruit of those efforts. You never know what you'll get when you go online. So, uh, I don't know. You let me know if you think this is a good opening or not. I'm going to read you the lyrics to a song. I've never heard this song. But it had a phrase that I wanted. So I'm going with it. And if you know this song and I murder the way I read it, you know it doesn't flow with the melody, then you can let me know later and forgive me. But there's an important theme in this song, and you'll catch on real quick, I'm sure. This is a a song by Lila McCann. Do you guys know Lila McCann? No? Okay. I'm totally ignorant. Uh, Country Western music is not my forte. This is country western, and it may be great, but I wouldn't know if she was famous or not. Anyway, this is Lila's song. It's called I Reckon. Where did you, and sorry for the, for the cheese before I get into this. Where did you learn how to talk to a woman? Look what you're doing to me. Why in the world are you so good looking? I thought Kathy pinned that part about me. Uh, as far as I can see, I know I'm never going to be the same. Can't seem to get you out of my brain. I reckon I will let you be my everything. I reckon I will, yeah, let you fall in love with me. Oh, yeah. I reckon, I reckon, I reckon, oh, I reckon I will. Sorry, I've got two more verses. Uh, whatever it is, I can't live without it. you got to hold on me. I want to tell the world. I want to scream and shout it. You came and set me free. I go along with that. I can't believe I finally found what's missing. You're the only one that can help this condition. I reckon I will let you be my everything. I reckon I will, yeah, let you fall in love with me. Oh, yeah, I reckon, I reckon, I reckon. I reckon it'll be all or nothing. I reckon you and me really got something. I reckon if it's good, it'll only get better. So maybe I'll let you love me forever. Oh, yeah. I reckon I will let you be my everything. I reckon I will, yeah, let you fall in love with me. Oh, yeah. I reckon I will let you be my everything. I reckon I will, yeah, let you fall in love with me. Oh, yeah. I reckon, I reckon, I reckon. Oh, I reckon I will. Oh, yes, I reckon I will. I reckon. Now, there's 24 I reckons in there. That is why you got to sit through this song. Sorry. Uh, oh, yes, I didn't count. But the I reckon part is the part that, that matters to us this morning. I reckon. Now, that's a song that will take you down the road. Now, you know, if you hear that phrase in a country western song like this, you'd assume this is sort of Americana slang at its best or worst. I reckon. Actually, it's not slang at all. Uh, I reckon. This is good English. And reckon comes from an old Anglo-Saxon word that I'd like to tell you about this morning just a little because it's important to where we're heading. If we reckon something, we count it, we assess it, we do the math on it, we check it out, we add up the facts, and we come up with an answer, with a figure. That's what reckon means. So in this nice country western song, she's assessing this fine young gentleman. She's doing the math, she's adding up the facts, and she says, yeah, this guy's okay by me. He'll do, he'll work. I reckon. So I reckon, when we reckon, we are doing the math, we're adding things up, we're seeing what the final conclusion is. And reckon is an important word in the Bible. And I don't know if she reads her Bible, but I reckon that's a good biblical phrase. 
We're going to be in Genesis 15 this morning, and you'll see this sense of reckoning, counting up, doing the math, doing this assessment and coming up with the proper conclusion. It's a big, big deal. We'll be in Genesis 15, 1 through 6 this morning. If you've got your Bible turned there now, we'll jump in, we'll restate the story, and then we'll get into the lesson proper. Let me just pray before I do, too. Lord, your word is so full and so rich and so overflowing with truth and goodness that it's uh, easy to lose one thing or another. I pray that you'd help me keep my thoughts ordered and that your church would hear all the things you want it to, no more and no less. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 15:1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram, I'm a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? The heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord, or Yahweh, came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir." He took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, that is Abram, and he, God, reckoned, counted, credited, assessed it to him, Abram, as righteousness. Now just go back briefly. Think about where we're at in the story Um, this is a jump. It's sort of a transition from Genesis 14. If you guys remember the story, this was where Abram rallied the troops, his house servants, guys he knew there in the neighborhood. They went out and they rescued Lot and his family, brought all the stuff back. They dropped it off there near Jerusalem. They'd met two kings, Melchizedek, who we looked at last week. To Melchizedek, Abram paid a tithe and received a blessing. Melchizedek was a priest of God Most High. The other was the king of Sodom, who offered Abram all the wealth that had been brought back from the war, to which Abram refused. So after this, we don't know how soon it is, we don't know how immediate, but after this, Abram goes back to his tent and his tree, and God appears to him. And the first thing God says is, don't fear, I'm your shield, and your reward will be great. And I think part of what's going on here for Abram, the introduction here by God is this. Abe has gone out and he's defended. He's fought against foreign kings. That would be a possibility of fear. He's fought against foreign kings. And he's sort of come back home. He's defeated them. But he's come back home, in a sense, with nothing more than he left with. He put his life on the line, his servants' lives on the line. He goes back, he rescues Lot, but he turns down all the wealth of the king of Sodom. And I think he goes back home There's been this very exciting short period in which something of value to most people has been offered to him, which he rejects. He goes back home. And I think Abram is feeling this sense of loss that his life is not what he thought it'd be and that his life is still missing this key component. And that is why God shows up at this point. You know, Abram, as you know in his story, all he wants is a son. That's all he's after. He's not after the wealth or the goods. He's not after the name. Abe wants a son. And God shows up to deal with him about this issue and this desire for a son. So we'll sort of do tic-tac here, God, Abram, and then back to God. What did God do? 
Abe complains to God. God comes and says something nice. Abe, I'll be your shield, your defender, and your reward will be very great. This is all positive. And he gets a complaint back. What does God do, though? God takes Abram out. It, it's apparently night. And, you know, there'd be no reflective light. There'd be no cities and city lights. And I'm assuming this was a clear Middle Eastern sky. And he takes them out, says, look up to the stars. And if you can count those stars, that's what your descendants will be like. Remember, Abram's old. He's an old guy already. He's old, but God says, no, Abe, you're going to have a son and you're going to have sons. Your son will have sons at least because there's really two promises here. One is you will have an heir. That's going to be a direct descendant. You're going to have a son, a direct descendant. That's one promise. The second promise is the stars, that your children will be as numerous as the stars. So really there's two promises here. One is a direct heir, an immediate heir, and the other is children as numerous as the stars. Now, uh, Abram does two things in this uh, interchange. And the first one is he complains. He complains to God because uh, he tells God, uh, what, what will you give me? I don't have a son. And he says in verse 3, this makes the point, uh, Lord, you have given no offspring to me. So not only is Abram childless, but when he interacts with God, he complains to God, and, and we could say in a sense he accuses God. In other words, Lord, if you wanted, I would already have a son. I would have a child. Before we proceed, I, I just want to focus on this for just a minute. Um, God does not reprove Abram for this interchange. He doesn't correct him. He doesn't say you're out of line. And you know, I think there's two reasons why. Uh, one is because what Abram said is true. He has no heir. The only thing he cares about, he doesn't have. That's true. And you know, the other thing is true. God's withheld an heir from him. God has. You know, when you read, especially the Old Testament, you see that the ancients believed that children were a blessing and a gift from God and that God either blessed and gave or he withheld. So when Abram says to God, you have given me no offspring, God doesn't chide him and say you're wrong. That was true. If God's omnipotent, then everything in life he either causes or allows. And so when Abram makes a complaint against God, God doesn't say, Abe, you're out of line or what you're saying is untrue. He really doesn't respond to it directly to the complaint. He's going to answer Abram's concern. But Abram makes a complaint. God doesn't get down on him. God doesn't reprove him. God doesn't say you're out of line. And just related to this, you and I, everybody, we'll have issues in life that are never what we thought they'd be. You know, I wanted to grow up and be a firefighter and I'm a policeman instead. Or you wanted to grow up and be the belle of the ball or the homecoming queen and you weren't. Or I, these are trivial, obviously, but... You get the picture. You, you might want to be married and you're not. You might, you might want kids and you can't have them like Abe. I mean, you could be faced with a hundred, a thousand, a million and one things in life where what you really care about in life you don't have. You don't get. And you know that if God wanted to, He could give you that thing, that singular thing that for you is important. And He doesn't. Oftentimes, for many of us, through our whole life, we may never get the singular thing that we thought that's really, that would make life complete. Like Abe, you can take that to God 
And you can tell them about it. And you can make your complaint. And you, you can tell them every little thing. And I am in no way suggesting that we're disrespectful to God, but um, he's our dad and he's big and he can take it. And sometimes we just got to let, let it off our chest that, Lord, we are disappointed and we're hurting and what we wanted we don't have and we can't lay hold of it. We can't get it. And there are times in life when with Abe, we just God could be there to encourage us and we may just feel like, Lord, the only thing I want to tell you is how mad I am. How disappointed I am. How I feel like you've ripped me off. I thought you were giving me this. You didn't. I wanted that. You didn't give it to me. That is Abe's life right here. And he makes a complaint. And he makes a charge. And God doesn't get upset. His feathers aren't ruffled. He's okay. And he continues speaking to Abram. And sometimes for us, we simply need to do what Abram did here. Get it off our chest to the Lord. Lord, This is what I care about. You could help me if you wanted. You could change the situation. And you know what? Typically, you feel better just if you've told the Lord all about it. Even if your situation doesn't change, you feel better. And God knows that. The other thing, though, that Abe does, and the thing that's the point of the passage this morning is, in verse 6, he believed in the Lord. We'll look at Hebrews here in just a little bit. We know that Abram's life is characterized by faith. And that when God said in Genesis 12, hey, leave your father's household and your relatives and the place you've been and go to the place I'll show you, Hebrews tells us that was by faith. But it's only here at Genesis 15, 6 that God says to Abram, he believed and it's credited as righteousness. It's Genesis 15, 6 at these promises. It's not before that. I'm not entirely sure what that means as far as Abram's absolute standing before God, but it's here in Genesis 15 that God says Abram is righteous. Abram believes the Lord. He believes in God, and he believes God's promise about a son, a descendant, an immediate descendant, and the promise that one son from this old man would turn into descendants, plural, as numerous, more numerous than the stars. That's what he believed. The third thing, back to God, God's response to Abram is, it says he reckoned it to Abram as righteousness. And back to this term reckoned, he counted it up, he assessed the situation, he did the accounting, he did the math, and he said based on Abram believing him, trusting him, we typically use the term faith today, based on Abram having faith in God and his promise, God reckoned, counted it up, did the math, and declared Abram to be righteous. Abram to be righteous. Righteous means that God can say, a perfect and holy God with no spot or wrinkle in his character, persona, anything, that he could look at Abram and say, Abram is perfect. Abram is as right as I am. There's no fault whatsoever in Abram. He's just perfect, right. He's righteous. This is no small thing. Based on Abram believing God and his promise about this child and these children, God reckoned, counted, credited Abram with perfect Righteousness. We'll talk more about this in just a second. 
based on Abram's response of faith or belief or trust. This is an important theme in the scripture. Um, we're going to be in Romans 3 and 4 for just a minute. If you want to turn there. <clears throat> you know, if you talk to people today, from Abram's day on, before Abram, after Abram, down to today, when Paul writes the New Testament, which is why we'll look at Romans in just a second, you know, if you conduct an informal survey and you just ask people in general, will you go to heaven when you die? Whatever you think heaven is, will you go to heaven when you die? Most people will say, I think I will, or I hope I will. And then you say, on what hope do you found that? You know, what, what's that based on? Well, they'll generally say something like, I've tried to live, live a good life and be a good person. Throughout history, people, we have a conscience that tells us we're not what we should be. We're not all we should be. We're less in some ways and more in, in the negative sense. So we know we've got an issue when we're honest with ourselves. We live in a time and a culture that says basically everyone's okay no matter what. But the truth is everybody inside still has a conscience. Even if you harden it over time, there's this little thing, little voice inside that tells you, I'm, I'm not what I should be. I've done wrong. And so mankind, we, we develop two ways of dealing with that. One is this. We might allow that God's better than us. But we might assume that God's willing to lower his standard enough that we can get in, that he'd say we're okay. That sort of we write God in our own image. God's a nice guy like us. He's understanding. So God would be willing to lower his standard so that he could accept me because I've got a few faults, I'll admit. Not big ones, just a couple minor ones. God would lower his standard. The other thing we think, if we don't go that route, we go this route. We say, you know, God's, God's good. But you know, I'm not so bad myself. And maybe, yeah, once in a while I don't do everything right, but I'm, I'm generally a pretty good person. So in this mentality, we don't necessarily lower God's bar, though we really do, but we elevate ourselves in our own minds that we're good enough to stand before a holy and righteous God. Of course, the problem with both of these views is they just they miss it by a mile. God can't lower his standard. It's impossible for God to lower his standard because he's holy. God can never be other than he is. Do you guys know that? God never learns. He never changes. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He's always known all things. He has all power. He can never grow in power. God doesn't change. God can't lower the standard. He would be less than God. God's standard cannot be lowered. And guys, and God knows we are not righteous. And he tells us throughout the pages of the Bible, if we care to listen. So these things won't work. When Paul's writing to the church at Rome, he's addressing these issues for his audience in his day. And in Romans 1, Paul says, primarily about people like us, Gentiles. We're the descendants of Japheth and Ham. Noah's sons, three boys. We're not the Semites, the descendants of Shem, most of us. We're the descendants of the other two brothers, Ham and Japheth. And Paul says in Romans 1 that the Gentiles, the nations, that's us, the Gentiles, they have a knowledge about God and his sovereignty, his grandeur, his perfections, his nature and character based on just looking at the world God created. They know something about God. We knew something about God. Paul says this is the problem with the Gentiles. What they know about God, they turn away from. See, there's enough in God's creation to know God's different than me and He's holy and He's bigger than me. He has higher standards than I have. And so it, Paul says the Gentiles, typically they do this. 
They turn their back to the truth they know about God from creation. And it says they, they go into darkness. They reject the truth. So the Gentiles, they're not going to measure up because they turn from the truth. Now the Jews, on the other hand, Romans 2, maybe they've got a chance. Because you see, they not only have natural revelation, the creation of the world, physical world around us by which God displays His glory, they've also got the law of Moses. So maybe they have a chance for righteousness. Paul says, well, no problem there too. Because though the Jews have the law, they don't keep it. So the Gentiles are in trouble and the Jews are in trouble. And in fact, in Romans 3, Paul says you're all in trouble. Because there the conclusion is there's none righteous. Now I love this. Emphasis helps. No, not one. There's none righteous, but I might be the exception. You might be the exception. Paul says no, not one. There's none righteous. Now, there's a shift in Romans 3 at verse 21 and following. I'll just read a couple of these verses. But we're told how an unrighteous Jew or Gentile could be found acceptable and meet the absolute perfect standard of a righteous God. Romans 3.22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. There's a righteousness of God. It's available. And it's available to us through faith in Jesus Christ. If you go down to verse 28, Paul says there, We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of law. A man is justified by faith apart from the works of law. That's Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed, that's faith, and God reckoned, he counted it up, and declared Abram righteous. That's this. That's Romans 3. Now, if you were a Jew in Paul's day, you might have trouble with this. You've got a temple, you've got sacrifices, you've got rules to keep. You might be struggling. It's by faith alone in Jesus, you know, the Jew, the Nazarene that we heard about. It's by faith in Him that we're declared righteous by the Holy God, by Yahweh. They're struggling with this. So Paul continues in Romans 4. And he says this, Romans 4.1, <clears throat> What shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? In other words, if we go back to the beginning of the Jewish race, that's Abram, that's Genesis 15. If we go back to the beginning, what does Father Abram teach us about this concept about being found righteous before a holy God by faith or belief alone? What does is, what is Abram, what does Father Abram teach us? Verse 3, what does the scripture say? Quoting from Genesis 15, 6, Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. This is exactly, it's not only a quote, but credited is the same thought as reckoned. Credited. In fact, depending on your version, it might say count. Some might say reckon. It's the same thought. God counted it up and they said, you're righteous. Verse 5, to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Same thought, reckon, count it up. God does the math. He says, through faith, they're righteous. Verse 18, speaking back to Abram again, and his, the object of his faith, if you will, in hope against hope, he believed. Hope against hope that an old man is going to have a son. That's the hope against hope. He believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be, Genesis 15, 5. And last in this, verses 21 through 24, 
being fully assured that what God had promised he was able to perform, therefore it was also credited to him as righteousness. That's our verse again, Genesis 15, 6. In fact, it's interesting, isn't it? This is just a little verse back in Genesis, and yet the New Testament doctrine of justification by faith hinges on it. This is cool. This means we should read our Bibles, sort of is where this goes. We've got to read our Bibles. Uh, now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, counted, reckoned, but for our sake also to whom it will be credited, reckoned, counted, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. So throughout history, including today, people ask themselves or they think about, when I die, what happens? Can I actually get into heaven? If so, based on what? And we err two different ways. And Paul says, this is the deal. In Paul's day, right into the Romans, Paul says, this is the deal. Justified by faith in Jesus Christ. Justified in the same way Abram was declared just in Genesis 15. By the way, same verse, Genesis 15, 6, Paul brings up again in Galatians 3, 6, which is a key passage about justification by faith again. Um, so I'm, I'm hammering on this. And guys, I tend to hammer on this whole concept of justification by faith because I think it's, it's uh, sort of all important. It's all important. It's all important. Why is it important and why does it matter? Um, you know, the big picture that you and I live in, we're born into, is you've got this great world, this great creation, and you've got these creatures created in the image of God. That's you and I. And yet, of course, we are not what we should be. We're not what God created us to be. We're all fallen from Adam and Eve on. Even though we still have God's image, we're still image bearers of the divine. We're not, we don't bear it the way we should. We're cracked and we're fractured and we're bent. We're less than we were meant to be. And that's why we've got a problem with God. God's never less than he is, could be, should be. And so to be in his presence, he cannot, by his very nature, God cannot. It's not that he's not merciful. It's not that he doesn't love us. God cannot, by his nature, bring into his family and his home forever anyone or anything that's less than perfect. It can't happen. Cannot happen, will not happen, never happen. So for humanity, our biggest need is somehow to figure out how do we get from our fallen condition which if we're left in it eternally means we're separated from God forever. That's how the story ends. For those apart from Christ, separated from Christ forever. This is not where I want to go. It's not where I want anybody I know to go or you to go or our children or our friends or the people we work with. And this thing about justification by faith, God, this is how heaven lays hold of earth and how we lay hold of heaven. It's knowing that it's through faith in Christ plus nothing we can be declared righteous, perfect, holy, spotless before a holy and perfect God. If we miss justification by faith, there's no hope for us because this is heaven's link to earth. We can never get above the bar. We'll never be right with God apart from God injecting himself on our behalf. And then our response is to believe, which basically means to trust or to accept. Now, Justification by faith presupposes that there's some means by which our faults can be taken care of. And this is Jesus Christ on the cross. 
So even though it's not brought up here in Genesis 15, 6, for someone to believe something is true, Abraham could believe God, a, a promise. But if there was no atoning sacrifice for sin, Abe would still be in trouble. Because God can't just say, you're okay, because I say you're okay. There's been sin. Something short of the mark. Sin must be covered. And so the cost of this justification by faith is Jesus' death on the cross for us. So when Jesus hangs on the cross, he's taking our sins. And just as the Jewish priest took the blood of the lamb once a year and poured it on the mercy seat of God in the Holy of Holies, meaning the priest could actually stand before the holy presence of God there in the temple or in the, in the tent while they're in the wilderness, God's presence was there above the mercy seat in a cloud. Do you guys know the gold box? The two angels are on top of it. And the seat there is gold. But the priest comes in and he pours blood on the mercy seat. And the thought is God above the mercy seat looks down between those angels and the law of Moses is inside the box. And the law of Moses, that's all the ways basically in which we break God's rules, in which we're less than we should be. And so when God looks down on that mercy seat, over the broken law is the blood of a sacrifice. And God sees the blood of the sacrifice covering the broken law. And that's atonement. And that's what we get in Christ. So faith is all important, but then it, of course, has to be faith in the right object. And for us, that is Christ himself. Faith in Christ is what saves us. So just as Abram believed God's promise of an heir, many commentators believe that when Abram believed God about an heir, he was believing in the Messiah. That Abe just didn't think he was getting a son. That Abe believed and knew because he was in the line of promise of God that his son would be the Messiah. Whether it was the next son, Isaac, Yitzhak, or an heir of Isaac. Most believe, most commentators believe Abram was actually believing that God was promising him the Messiah and that Abram's faith was therefore literally in God's Messiah even though he didn't know him by name as Jesus. So faith, faith for us is all important because it's what links us with Jesus' atoning sacrifice and the ability to stand before a holy and perfect God. If you'd like, turn to Hebrews 10 and 11 just for a moment. <clears throat> God looked at Abram. He reckoned. He counted the facts. He did the math and he says, righteous. That's God's reckoning. I reckon, God says. But you know, we have reckoning to do too, right? Somebody makes a claim. Jesus makes a claim. We assess it. We do the math. We count it up. For us, faith, belief is reckoning. We hear God, God's word, his promise. And we choose, after we've done the math, to believe it, believe him, or not believe him. We accept his promise as true or we don't. But you see, faith for us is the fruit of reckoning also, of counting it up, of doing the math. In Hebrews 10.38, Habakkuk 2 is quoted, My righteous one shall live by faith. This could mean two things, and I think it means both. My righteous one will live, that is, enter eternal life through faith. We become righteous by faith, Habakkuk 2. And our life 
ever after is characterized by faith. The righteous enter life by faith, and then they live by faith. Habakkuk 2. God says that's his description of the life of anyone who's trusted Christ. Go to Hebrews 11.6. This is the Hall of Fame. This is the story about all the folks before us who practiced faith. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Guys, if we can't please God, we're in trouble. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. And sort of the thing here is, God can never lie. If God tells us something and we don't believe him, what are we inferring? That God can be less than honest, that he's less than he is. It's an insult. It's impossible without faith to please God. It's the least thing we should do. Believe that a God who cannot lie is telling the truth. Makes sense. It honors who he is, what he's like. Then he goes on at verse 8. By faith, Abram, when he was called, obeyed and went out. That's Genesis 12. By faith, he lived as an alien in the land of promise. That's basically his whole life through chapter 25 in Genesis. Verse 11. By faith, even Sarah herself uh, received ability to conceive beyond the proper time of life because she considered, like Abram, Sarai had faith also, she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, there was born even of one man and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants, Genesis 15 again, as the stars of heaven in number and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. That's Genesis 13. When we do the math, when we count it up, when we weigh God's character and his promises, the only appropriate conclusion is faith. It's trust. We reckon, we count, we say, yeah, God, you're true. You tell the truth and I'm trusting you. Guys, I was, uh, I read my Bible pretty regularly. I've read my Bible a lot for 30 years. Um, <clears throat> I don't say this to be proud. I, I can't help it. It's, I'm driven to it. I'm compelled. But I got to tell you, I, I spent the last uh, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday night, two and a half hours a night, Saturday, five hours, at a sort of a mini conference uh, by a guy who's a seminary professor. He's a PhD. He's a smart guy. And he was just talking through the book of Matthew. And he was taking this segue and that, and this tangent and that. And I got to tell you, I was humbled and I was convicted and I was encouraged. I was making all these notes on bases I needed to go home and cover. Uh, things in my life that weren't what they should be and I had sort of just glossed over them. And it's because I was confronted by God's word that this happened. And, it, you know, hours too, whatever that am amounts to, 10, 11, 12 hours in a few days, I felt like I was under the shower or under a waterfall. And even though my backside was very sore by yesterday afternoon, I just come, came away encouraged and convicted and, and challenged in all the best ways just because the, the impact, the influence of God's word that's what it had. That's what it did for me. And, and I'm realizing I'm, <clears throat> i got to get my act straight. I've got to get back in the Word. I thought I knew my Bible somewhat well. This guy, I'm like, oh my goodness. He not only has the references, he can tell you where every verse leads and all the sections lead and, and on and on and on. This guy's a PhD, but you know what struck me? All he did was quote the Bible. He talked through, the, he didn't bring out the Hebrew and the Greek almost at all. 
He just talked through the Bible, and he, one passage to another, and it was amazing. And I'm saying all of this for this, this benefit. If it's impossible to please God without faith, then the question sort of becomes, where do I get faith? Paul tells us in Romans 10 where we get faith, and this is where Abram got it in Genesis 15. God spoke, and Abram believed. And in Romans 10, Paul says, faith comes by hearing, and hearing the word of Christ. If I want to please God, if I want to live by faith, guys, I've got to hear Christ's word. I've got to be in the scriptures. I've got to be reading my Bible. When I say read the Bible, this means read your Bible, think about your Bible, memorize your Bible. It means get under the water. You know what I mean? It's got to become a part of you. And when it does, you don't have to work at building up faith. Faith is a response to God's word, a God who cannot lie. Christian faith has nothing to do with leaps in the dark. He would tell you faith is a leap in the dark. That is not biblical faith. Never has been, never will be. Faith is an absolute certainty that a God who cannot lie has just spoken the truth. And the God who cannot lie, who has all power, will do what he said he'll do. That's biblical faith. So if you and I want to be able to please God, and if we want to be able to live a life of faith, which is a life characterized by joy and peace, this is to be like Christ, We've got to be in the scriptures. They've got to be a part of us. We've got to be a part of them. Apart from that, we cannot live this life of faith. Faith comes by hearing God's word. That's what we need. Let me close with this. <clears throat> what Abram wanted more in life than anything was a son. It's really all he wanted. Didn't care about the, the nation. Didn't care about the land. He didn't care about a lot of things. The wealth. All he wanted was a son. And yet here's Abe. Think of him. He's in his 80s when this happens, Genesis 15. He's in his 80s. He's thinking about the only thing on this earth that makes any difference to him, a, a son, a boy. He looks at his own body and he looks at old Sarah. And how hopeful do you think he is that he can produce or that they can produce a son? Not very hopeful. He looks at his own body and he has no hope. Looks at himself, he has no hope. And guys, when you and I honestly look at ourselves for anything related to right standing before God, perfection, righteousness, justification, anything, guys, there is absolutely no hope. You know, if Abram and Sarah were old and wrinkled at this point, not much to look at physically, think of what we look like morally to a perfect God. Old and wrinkled doesn't even begin to describe it. If we look to ourselves for some sense of right standing before God, we are without hope, without hope whatsoever. But check this out. Abram, Abram's at night in a dark tent, I take it. And so when God wants to make the point, he says, Abe, come outside, quit looking at yourself, come out of the dark, and you raise your eyes up, look up into the sky, look up into the air, look up into the night sky, and all those stars, that's my promise to you, that's like your descendants. Those stars in the sky are an illustration of how many kids I'm going to give you. Abe, you come out of the dark, you look up, and that's the illustration of my promise to you. And God calls us to come out of our tents and out of our darkness, and he says, you look up at my son on the cross, hung between heaven and earth, just like the stars. You come out of the dark, you look up, 
And you'll see my promise hung there, suspended there for you. You trust that and you're good to go. Come out of the dark. Take God at His word. Do the math. Count it all up. Do the accounting. And come to this conclusion. God is who He said He is. You can trust Him. And He said that in Christ we have a perfect covering, a perfect atonement for sin. And that a holy God can look at any one of us today, this is mind-boggling, and say, He's perfect. She's righteous. They're without spot or wrinkle. I can welcome them into heaven, into my presence forever right now. And that's what we get in Christ. Genesis 15, 6. You know, justification by faith. They're in the story of Abram. They're in the Old Testament. If we want to have a life of faith, we've got to know what God's saying. Let's pray. Lord, we think we're okay until we get in your presence. We think our lives are generally all right until we take a look at your word. Lord, your perfection, the light that is your presence and your commands, your standards, they they put the lie to any claim we have on self-sufficiency, right standing before you. Father, I pray that you'd help us abandon all hope of ever in anything we can do producing something of spiritual life or value. Lord, help us to jump with reckless abandon into the sea that is your word, into the waters that cleanse us. Lord, thanks for the atoning sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, our Savior, on the cross for our sins, suspended between heaven and earth for us to gaze up at just as ancient Israel, Lord, looked at the serpent raised up, they were healed. Lord, help us to look up to Christ on the cross and place all our trust and confidence in him for our righteousness. And Father, help us to be people like Abram who are giving ourselves to the truth of your word. God, help us to be thinking about what you have said, meditate on it, writing it out, making it a part of who and what we are. And Father, thank you that we are no less than Abram, a part of your family. The Lord will see Abram and Sarah and all the redeemed one day with you, maybe sooner than we think. Lord, thanks that all of your promises are yes and amen, that we can absolutely count on you. Help us to give you the things that are our complaints in this life, Lord, and help us to look to you for the answers. In this life, Lord, or in eternity, we, we place our hope We affirm our confidence, Lord, in you and in your provision for our righteousness, the Lord Jesus himself. Amen.